You sending the wolf? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me. It's 2019. Happy New Year. This episode is going live on January 1st, 2019, and I am thrilled to be with you. Um, If you can't hear it in my voice, yes, I am still sick, Um, but I wanted to record this this intro. I'm recording on, um, on Christmas Eve, so hopefully by the time you're actually listening to this, I'm not really still sick. Uh, but who knows? Um, but I hope that if you are listening to this, you've had a wonderful holiday season and you are ready uh, to take on 2019 in a big way. Um, I'm going to keep this intro pretty short because I've got a great episode today. It's really, I know I say this every week, but it really and truly is one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded. Um, it is a very real, um, deep conversation about a lot of real important topics and issues past and present. Um, my guest today is the lovely and brilliant Joelle Monique. Uh, she is a writer. You've read her all over the internet when it comes to geek culture and life and politics. Um, and she is a host. You've seen her on camera many times. And, um, you know, I'm so thrilled to, to have her on the show, first of all. Um, but when she picked To Kill a Mockingbird, I was even more excited. Um, as you'll hear in this interview, she and I both have very personal relationships to this movie um, through our dads. And, um, and you know, what ensued was a, a conversation um, between two women with very similar backgrounds, but also very different backgrounds, um, about, um, a movie that is a classic, a piece of literature that is a classic, a lead performance from Gregory Peck that is iconic, um, and some really difficult issues that still, however many decades after Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird and however many decades after this film came out, um, we as Americans are still dealing with. So it's a very open and honest conversation, but I hope that in listening to this, you know, not only will maybe you um, hear some things that you weren't maybe expecting, or um, maybe you will hear some analysis from the film or the book uh, that you weren't necessarily expecting, or maybe you will hear a conversation that is hopefully um, honest and and there's a lot of listening in this conversation. Um, I don't know. I, I just love talking to Joelle in general. Um, this was the first time that she and I actually really got down. We've, we've obviously spoken before and 
interacted before, but this was the first in-depth, long discussion that she and I had. And, um, and I, I, you'll hear it in the show, but, um, I, I absolutely immediately invite her back for more. Um, it was such a treat for me. It was a privilege for me. It was a, an honor for me to have her on. I've admired her work from afar. And so to have her on the podcast was a, was a great, was a great, um, joy for me. So, all right, you don't have to listen to my stuffed up nose any longer. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy 2019. Here is Joelle Monique talking about To Kill a Mockingbird. about a movie. So that's that's the plan. On default, we're probably be talking a lot about my father today. That's you know what? We are going to be talking a lot about my father today yes. too because this that is my relationship to this movie. Um also. So, uh in I that look forward to this conversation yeah. so much. <laughs> I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. And thank you for for I just want to can I if I may set the scene for mm-hmm. for our listeners. Um there are fresh baked cookies on our table. Yes. It is feeling like we are we are both little uh LA LA orphans for holiday time um not orphans of course but we're both here for the holidays we're christmas orphans yes i think one of my twitter followers coined the term Chris Orphans? Chris Orphans? Chris Orphans? <laughs> Chris Chris Orphans? And I was like, see, he feels me in that we're just going to be alone for the holidays. And so, you know, trying to make it a little less lonely with I cookies. Love it. That's <laughs> cookies and friends and friends, friends, it's not Friendsgiving, but you know, some cute little play on, on friendly Christmases. Um, but I love it. Thank you for letting me come over. Yeah, thank um, you for coming here. Yes, I'm very excited. And I'm really excited. You know, uh, I haven't had anybody pick. That's not true. I've only I have had mostly contemporary movies lately. But I did just talk about uh, the third man, um, which I had never seen before, which was very cool. Um, But I'm glad that we we have a classic to talk about, too, which is really fun. Listen, this movie does not age, which is like, yeah, there's like only a handful. Like we were talking about the apartment earlier. Yes. uh, That doesn't age. It's so weird. You could step into it right now. That could be your friend. I um, agree. Uh, Some like it hot, weirdly, does yes. not age, very time specific, but could be anyone in entertainment right now working. Yep. Uh, those are my favorite kinds of movies. I like that. I know. You know what else is? I is actually that the um, To Kill a Mockingbird and um, Some Like It Hot have in common is that they were made after the time period in which they were set, which I always find helps a movie. You know what I mean? Because live forever. Yes. Yeah, it has perspective on the time, and so it's not bogged down by the current emotions or, you know, you get that hindsight and get to put everything kind of in its place and it it enriches the movie greatly. And it also kind of helps set the tone for how, like when I see the twenties, like mm-hmm. I'm thinking something like it hot, but that's right. like 1958. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's bizarre, but it definitely, it, it, I've been thinking about this a lot, how films, um, shape how we view the past yes before all you had was your imagination and maybe some paintings yes which was way cool mm-hmm. but now we have actual like well how did people walk around hundreds like a hundred years ago or um if you think about the first kiss they found you see that little clip of uh-uh. like oh my gosh okay okay really quick um yeah. there's um a clip that i want to say usc but that's probably wrong just found it's maybe 30 like 50, between 15 and 33 seconds long and it's from 
1893 and it's just a black couple kissing oh wow. but it's like it's very performative in the same like you know before talkies the silent era pictures and so there's a lot of gesturing and movement but also like it's like early black love on film and I mean, you're seeing it and they were alive in like 1893 it's so cool and someone put the beale street um oh. theme over it and so it's all those like swelling violins oh, and wow. this, like beautiful lyrical music to these like old couple but they're very young and, and it, uh, it's just so like stirring and, and visceral and this idea of being able to like see yourself in like an era and times gone by it, it's it's like vital and important to me absolutely and so to see something that's never been seen before like just rediscovered is so cool yeah i mean well because the the myth the myth is that that's that didn't exist or, or if it did it was you know it was few and far between and like when we look back especially when we look back at at the history of cinema mm. it is so the, the history that we know is so overbearingly it is white but you know and and it's like we we are coming around to trying to find the history of women's contributions to the early days you yes, know there were so many there female were. directors and and editors because that was considered yes, women's work that's right back in the day because it was dainty and you used your hands and then something they were like women have control of the stories get the frick out of the editing office Makes no sense. Very frustrating. Yeah. But yeah, there's just a huge swath of women. Dorothy Arzner, if people are looking, directed a really beautiful film with uh, Lucille Ball. I'm forgetting the name. Something like Dance, Dance, Dance or Girl Dance or something. Look, it's like a very cheesy comedy where Lucille Ball, for whatever reason, is playing like a young, hot 20-something, but she's definitely in her early 40s. <laughs> and like, Get it. Get it, Lucy. Like, hula dancing. And oh, I miss Filmstruck, guys. Yeah. I just tell you to go there and watch it. But you could like, yes, women uh, have made all these contributions and and studying them and seeing how they approached the craft and how different it was and also the lasting effects they have that you didn't know about because nobody told you these women existed. That's right. And so as an extension of that, I really hope that because I will tell you, even in my own film school history, the women that, you know, took up time or space in those conversations were minimal. But the people of color, the women of color that took up time in those conversations, non-existent. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly. And we know I, that can't be true. It's it, it's not true and it can't be true. So we have to do the work to find it and then to like get out our megaphones and scream it and rewrite and literally rewrite history, yes. which is, you know, I tell I will tell you this about doing this podcast when we inevitably look back at classic cinema. The voices that I am having on the show and I'm fortunate to have on the show don't often reflect the people who make these lists. Oh, yeah. And so it's been a really cool, you know, experience to to have other have voices kind of be like, no, I don't I don't think this is right. Or, yes, I do think this is right. You know what I mean? When I get to make my addition later, I know what movie I would remove from the list. Oh, good. I, I love it. Like, how is this on the list? That's so mad. I, I am so excited to hear about that <laughs> because I I feel very strongly about a handful of those two. Like, how are these up in the top of the top of the top? And it's... Some um, of the rankings make no sense, too. Oh, You're yeah. like, really? Really? Well, okay. the audience is sick of me screaming about how Vertigo has no place in the top 10. I freaking hate Vertigo. I hate it, too. I hate it with a passion. This I is know. not a good movie. No. This is a man who made a ton of good movies it's fine if we don't like this one it's boring oh my god you're just chasing blondes everywhere 
Get it, Give girl. Give me rear window any day of the week. Yes. Masterpiece. High art. Beautiful. Stunning lighting. Like, everything about it. Mwah. Okay? I'll even take birds, even though it made me afraid of birds. <laughs> I hate so it's them effective. so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, or Psycho, if we have to. Yeah. Can we fast forward to the good parts? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. It's a long intro I don't care about. Yes. Yeah, but I, I, I this is why this is why I ask because I couldn't agree more. And I think that there are so many people who are not only passionate but informed, they're engaged, and they have very important we all have very important voices that, that and if it's dissenting or if it's agreeing, then they need to be heard too. So I that's a, one of like the great um, lessons I have learned over the course of this podcast, you know, is is that experience, which is always fun for me. Um, Okay, so let's talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. So, first of all, actually, I do not know this about you. Where are you from originally? Chicago. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now, were you like in the city proper? Were you in a suburb? (coughs) I'm clear my throat. Um, Okay, so I was born just outside of the city. Both of my parents born and raised inside the city. Got it. Um, They moved like mm, 15, 20 minutes out. Um, but then when I was seven, we moved to the corn. Uh, so in and the I don't know what that means. Illinois. Uh, so we moved to Ottawa, Illinois, which okay. is a very small uh, town in the middle of the Illinois Valley. Uh, we meet where two rivers meet, and then there's Starved Rock was my backyard. It's okay. the sixth national, sixth largest national park. Cool. Um, it also meant that all minorities made up less than one percent of the population where I grew up. Sure. Um, and so that had like a very long and lasting effect because I did first grade all the way through high school there. Um, but then I got the hell out of Dodge and I moved into Chicago. I went to Columbia College, Chicago, okay. uh, and I was there. F- in Chicago for like six and a half years before I moved here to LA. Great. And do your parents still live in the small town? Oh, no. They okay. also got the hell out of Dodge. Okay. They were just like, it was a safe school district. And I was like, we could have done better. Yeah. I could have helped you with research. You didn't ask. <laughs> okay. We could have been been a team effort. <laughs> it really should have been. I will tell you that it is not the same scenario. However, um, I, grew, I grew up in a suburb outside of Atlanta. Uh-huh. And um, as soon as I got into the last semester of high school, my mother put that house on the market and she got the fuck out of there. She is- It feels like a betrayal, right? You're like, why did I have to live my formative years yeah. here? And you know what? And it was because of schools. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. exactly that. I went to, I was a public school kid. Like I went to public school. Yeah. We had great school. We had, we went to an incredible high school. Same, yeah. I mean, we like 27 times state championships and band and then they have like pretty good sports program. Like, so the music program was great and that was important to my parents. And then they had a good like uh, sports program, which they thought my brother was going to be in, but he was like, I'm going to do art, talk to me um <laughs> i did, wound up doing theater and a bunch of like mostly i cared about extracurriculars and yeah. i had all of that stuff for me and it was safe I and mean, i could ride my bike around at yeah. night and i never had to worry about literally anything um but also it was boring and my access to high art like museums mm. and you know other cool things real nerd culture mm-hmm. you know nerd culture was so underground and i was so different than all the nerds participating in, you know, manga or like everything. I just felt very isolated from all the things that I would have loved. Like I didn't get into comics until 
my 20s because, you know, the comic books, the bookstore I went to didn't believe comics were real books. Wow. They were run by old lesbians. They were great. They gave me like a lot of, they were my intro to art. They were like, here, please read Shakespeare. Uh Like, you know, here's Jane Eyre. Try the classics. Mm. I'm like nine. These are very inappropriate books. Wow. (laughs) But but they were like encouraging. It's like I got to engage in that kind of stuff. But yeah, it, uh, that country life, man, it's wild. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so then with all of that being said, what was your first exposure to To Kill a Mockingbird? Ooh, okay, so... Because did you guys read the book or the play I in did. school? I read, we it read it in too. eighth grade, Mrs. Lindig's class. Okay. Uh, she was also great and gave me a lot of books that were much higher than my reading level. Um that was not one of them. This was part of the course curriculum and we read it and I used to like hate reading books in class because they were boring Yeah. or I had already read them. So often I would be reading something else. Yeah. <laughs> but this one, no one had introduced me to it yet. And then like hearing things from Scout's perspective, I was like, ho, it's like me as a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, because at that point I'm 12 or 13 and, and I felt much older than Scout's six. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> but it, the girls that I had been reading, um, Pippi Longstockings was like, I'm going to go out and get dirty and like adventure. And I was like, that is not me, girl. I respect (laughs) what you're doing. But no, I read a ton of books about like princesses. Some were very badass. Some were very dainty. None of them really felt like me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these classic kind of literary heroines were all cool and didn't have my voice. Scout was like me to a T, like Mm -hmm. that, like you should not be fighting people. Yeah. Please step back. And I wasn't a fist thrower, but I was ready to verbally assault people all the time as a child. Just, you don't know what you're talking about. You're like 10, kid. Like, take it down a notch. Ridiculous. Um, And so I became, like, very engrossed in the book that way. And then my father, we used to have this thing called Movie Sundays. Mm. So he... My dad, like, had never planned to become a dad. Like, he got married and everything, and then my mom was like, so I'm pregnant. He was like, oh, we're doing kids? And then so... It just kind of happened to him. And I think, you know, he's like a like a real adult. Like he he loves babies, like mm-hmm, squishy mm-hmm. things, or he can just make goofy faces and they're like, oh my God, hilarious. But then they start talking. He's like, I don't know yeah. what to do with that one. Um, so in order to like try to connect, he was like, well, you like acting. I don't know anything about theater, but we'll watch movies every Sunday morning. And so through that way, he would start educating me about his childhood through films and so we'd watch his like childhood favorites so it was like a ton of monster movies and stuff but then he would be like well what do you want to watch and so I was like I want to watch Nosferatu he's like a silent vampire movie mm-hmm. okay and so we got him <laughs> out of his depth and so I was doing like a lot of global cinema early because I was you know interested in like the Italians and I was like you just shoot people on the street like wild um and he was giving me a lot of stuff from the 60s a lot of Sidney Poitier mm. um and then we got to this movie mm. and it was like the book that I loved and he was like well you should see Gregory Peck in the movie and we had already seen is it Mr. Smith goes to Washington Gregory Peck uh that is um Jimmy That's Stewart the other guy yeah James Stewart I, I cannot remember the Gregory Peck movie we watched before this. He, mm, uh, Moby Dick? Mm, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Not, <laughs> definitely not Moby Dick. Um, uh, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. We watched something else with him and we were like, great, love him. I want to see more of his work. So he was like, I'll bring in To Kill a Mockingbird. And I just remember like, in reading the book, I was like, I see a lot of my dad mm-hmm. in this character. And like, obviously Scout's a daddy's girl. I'm clearly a daddy's girl. Um, but also just in like this kind of like upstanding citizen yeah. dude who was very much has a 
hard fought idea about what it is to be a good person in the Mm -hmm. world. Um, And so then I got to watch the movie with him and he was like, wow. And I actually, I told my dad I was coming on the show and I was like, we're going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. So probably talk about you. And he was like, I haven't seen this movie in years. I'm like, you showed it to me in high school. He's like, so that was over 10 years ago. And I was like, I need you to not. Yeah. Um, He was like, also, I don't remember watching this with you. And I felt a little bit betrayed. Like, how do you not remember this very special moment? He was like, yeah, no, I kind of vaguely remember watching part of it and I was like oh you did leave in the middle oh no <laughs> he's 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 watched this movie maybe 40 times and yeah. he was like a lot of times he would like we would start movies and then he would come in afterwards and he would be like all right so now I'm gonna quiz you about what you saw or I'm gonna give you like the historical like rundown of it um but yeah it it remains like this this kind of magical placeholder of what my youth was like uh-huh. in a lot of ways a lot of ways in how I wanted my youth to be like. Mm. I really wanted to grow up in the South when I was a kid because I was very dramatic and I felt that they would handle that personality a lot better oh, than wow. the Midwest who was like, you know, very kind of like rules and standards mm. and you're polite but not overly so and and you don't want to like throw a history. You can't like just leap off into grand statements in the rural Midwest. They're not here for it. They're right. like, that's extra. But the South is all about, you know, Blanche DuBois. If and you are giving us a good presentation yes. and some tasty Scarlet bits O'Hara. of gossip, yeah. we'll take it. Steel Magnolias. Yeah, they're going to talk bad about you, but then you get to fight back and do it. Yeah. And again, verbal assaults. It's what I was about. Yep. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> it's um, it's funny because my, my dad, we never watched this movie together, but uh, so my dad is a criminal defense attorney whoa okay so this is like much more connected okay well in a in a way in a way i mean and i will say the two things that really stood out to me re-watching this movie were um that you know my dad so my dad's a criminal defense attorney in the south um and he always told me that you know so he was a professional well, he was a football player he played for the university of georgia he's a big guy was always an athlete um and you know his football career got cut short um because he's injured so he's just like atticus what <laughs> and uh and he he so as a, you know there is a sense of competition and strategy and mental fitness that goes along with the law and he told me when i was when i was little that he wanted to be become a lawyer because he wanted to be Atticus Finch and the greatest human being (laughs) and uh and then I also uh you know and I also he I also related to it rewatching it because something my dad always did with me that I really appreciated and I think (laughs) for better or for worse it's why men don't intimidate me in a business setting especially um my dad has always talked to me like an equal. You were never a kid to your dad either. Yeah, yeah that's exactly totally right. Totally, same. Yeah. You were, you were spoken to like a, a young adult. That's right. You know, but like it was yes sir, no sir in my house and like, you know, check in and it's fine, do what you want, but like within reason, don't yeah. be loud. And it, it, yeah, yeah, totally. It was, it was, there was a sense of responsibility and granted, like my parents were always parents, you know what I mean? Like yeah, they were your friends. Yeah, that's exactly right. My parents were not my friends, um, but I was still close. I was very close to my dad and, um, and yeah, and he would like, 
you know, tell me about cases that he was working on and ask me what I thought about them. Or he would say, well, here's this, but, but here's that. And he would come into my school and he actually, we did a trial like of the three little pigs or something. So there was a defense attorney and there was like a prosecuting attorney and the wolf was on trial and like all this stuff. But I mean, he like, he really respected me in a way to where I am not in, you know, I'm used to being like, well, I have thoughts on this, you know, and, and, and so I, I have learned that this is, um, impressive to some people because I, mm. I'm not kind of like, uh, I'm not afraid to sit mm-hmm. across from somebody and have a conversation with them, but there is a type of person where this is not, Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Who do you think you are? That's right. With your opinions That's and your right. decisions and God, what would that one guy say to me once? Oh, you don't have to have an answer for everything, but I, do have an answer for you. Yeah. You asked me a very specific question. So your problem is with the fact that I have thoughts. That's right. And you can just shove that. So yeah. Yeah. You don't have the time. It's uh it's it's really like a you know, and, and it's also come to my benefit in some ways too. Like I remember, uh, I remember recently I, I interviewed, um, Donald Sutherland yeah. for something and he was, it was for the Getty movie or whatever that okay, they okay. did for a TV miniseries for AFX or whatever. And he was not having that press day. He did not want to be there. He's very crabby. <laughs> and so I would like ask him a question and he would kind of brush me off. And then I would ask him another question. He kind of brushed me off. So at some point I, I put my hand on my hip and I said, well, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> and they kind of sometimes mm. crabby old men, mm. they go, oh, wait a second. But sometimes they go, oh, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, and this is obviously one person's perspective, mm. but in, yeah. So, so rewatching this like was really, it was very interesting. I think the ideals that my dad has are very present in Atticus. Um, and oh my God, the growing up, like we were talking before we started rolling about the, the second book that, you know, mm. was unfinished and mi- mixed reviews to say the least. You're not even going to drop the title. Don't bother yeah, reading it. Yeah, it's, it's not, not worth it. But I do think that there is something very interesting to seeing Scout grown up and mm-hmm. her relationship with her dad and her his relationship to the law and what you see through the lens of a child versus what you see through the lens of an adult. So, so many points. Okay, so first, uh, looping in our earlier yes. point of having a father who allows you to speak your mind, mm-hmm. we get these like such great like kernel moments between Scout and Atticus. Yeah. You know, particularly when I think when she's on the bench or after you know the one of the kids makes fun of her dad for defending Tom. Yeah, and you know she's crying and he's like you know. You got to think about all sides and contemplate, but he's, you know, addressing her in a way that you figure it out. Like you're smart. You know how you want to navigate through the world. And then later we see Scout use that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she doesn't know she's doing it. She's six. <laughs> like what I love about this book is like a lot of times when we write kids, we write them too old. Yes. You know, we're trying to correct things we've done in our past. I think through writing um, and, and giving these kids the power of things that we didn't know. But Scout, you know, when she addresses the crowd in front of Tom cell and they're trying to lynch him and she, you know, is like, hey, like I know you, dude. And she's using all the tools that Atticus has given her at this point of like, you know, you address everyone as a person mm-hmm. because you respect everybody. And because she respects everybody, even in this moment where she knows her dad's in danger because they've run up to protect him, she's still, oh, but 
like this doesn't make sense to me because I know you and you know my dad. So what's happening here? And it's it's like this is such this beautiful like heartbreaking moment, but it's also highlights like a really great gift parents give to their children yeah. of like in scary moments the best gift I can give you is how do I handle myself mm -hmm. so I can get through this safely. And like, I just, I find that so beautiful. And then to have like, there's still parts of this movie and the book that aren't always a hundred percent clear, mm -hmm. especially if you're coming back to it after a long time of viewing it because of that lens of a, like through it, seeing actions through a child's lens, um, seeing the court case in particular, yeah. um, you're, we're jumping around a lot. It's a long yeah. day. So you get that sense of like fatigue and I'm not hundred percent sure what any of this means. And there's so much innuendo and in, um, in things implied, for example, um, was, oh, crap names. Uh, That's okay. I the can't. the girl that accused Tom. Oh, Mayella. Mayella. Um, and her father. Like, clearly it's her father who hit her. Clearly it's because he saw her kissing Tom. But is there also an incestuous relationship there? Like, there's a lot of him owning her. A lot of him calling, you know, that's my daughter. It's not about Mayella. I call a doctor who gives a crap about what happened to her I knew she was fine there's an allusion to his drinking as yeah, well I mean yeah. yeah and he's very willing to attack and hurt children mm -hmm. you know as we see in the end and so like you don't and the, the, like the greatness of Harper Lee's writing is you don't need to know yeah the details of all of that you don't need to know all of the ins and out to know that it's just a really horrible situation um and I I, I think it's important to be able to see some of the times through a child's eyes. Like, and especially I think we're talking about how relevant this movie is to current times. Yeah. when We are slowly inking our way into another depression and a financial depression as we're slowly looking at politicians. We're having difficulty trusting as we're looking at a criminal justice system that still does not respect black bodies. It, I think what's most important having grown up under similar duress, um, to look back and go like, how are we shaping this for our kids to mm -hmm. come out of how are like, you know, there were certain things like as a kid, there was like a big boom and like, we can need to see black faces on TV. Mm -hmm. Right. So we had like the proud family, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. other, like uh, cousin Skeeter was on Nickelodeon. Like you suddenly had like black kids in animation. And I remember very clearly one day, my father again, through screens is how we connected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he would come into my room sometimes and be like, okay, well, what are you watching? Like teach me about like your world and what mm -hmm. you're observing. And he saw the proud family. He's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like it blew his mind. He's like, is this what you guys watch now? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, that's so cool. And no black kids on TV. When I was, coming up um and i i i don't know like i just hope that we're we're finding ways for our kids to come out like scout and gem like come out good people and and clear-headed and and seeing things fully you know at rates they can understand it yeah i thought it was really important it's something that stood out to me this time around too like seeing how um gem went with atticus a lot of places like you know what i mean a young man Listen. <laughs> you know when he tells his father like so there's twice when jim is like no sir yeah like i respect you but i'm gonna be the man you taught me to be and the first time is in front of um the jail cell but the second time is when he's like i'm gonna go tell them that he's dead and like atticus previously says 
I'm going to protect you. I wish I could protect you from everything. I just can't. I won't cry, guys. <laughs> I really have to do. It's really. But, but it's, so, it's so beautiful because, again, Atticus takes being a parent so seriously. It's so important to him, clearly. And, like, you see this composed man through all of these trials and tribulations the whole time, angry people, you know, just mean spirited people. He's able to just melt their hearts. But when he's not sure what happened to scout, she's running out of those woods. He's frantic. Like he is losing it. And so you, you know that everything he tells his children is, it's as true as he knows it to be. Yeah. And so for him to like, even let Jem come along and just like, I'm going to expose you to this painful thing because you're saying that you're ready and I trust you. Um, but also it's going to break my heart because I'm taking a part of your innocence again. Like that is just some powerful writing that you get in maybe over the course of like four sentences. Like yeah. it's, oh man, it's like, it's truly an American classic. And I feel like that's why it's hard to get a book right in a movie form. It's just really, it's challenging to adapt. We lose a ton in, in this short book adaptation to a pretty long feature movie. Mm-hmm. So to get, those essences, right, and those qualities, right? It's just, it's still so impressive. Well, and the lessons of empathy, too. I mean, like, to me, that was the thing that one of the, that's something to me that, you know, I'm not a parent, um, but one day maybe I will be. Um, but that's something that, I, like, I volunteer with kids. Um, that was something I did a lot when I first moved to Los Angeles. And there are so many really great kids uh, that, have such little guidance yeah. and but teaching empathy is clearly empathy is something that we are lacking uh are the grown-ups in our society in our culture for sure and generation z is doing such a good job trying to pick up our slack and i'm just so impressed yeah i mean and i really hope that was something that really stood out to me like atticus just really sits down and says, you need to think about what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. You need to, this is important. I am telling you that as a human being, this is important. And I, to me, the, the notion that any, that, that, that's not a thing that kids are taught, like is shocking to me. I just don't, I, I honestly don't understand how, how parents or authority figures are not imparting that specifically on their kids it's not something you can teach if it's not something you're demonstrating that is true and i think that is is probably the biggest problem is is as we're watching and certainly i've been guilty of it too especially in you know it's hard because like i feel justified in a lot of my anger recently but I also understand that spewing that anger at people, even those who deserve it, isn't necessarily going to breed the outcome I want it to. Right. And there's definitely merit, I think, behind I'm just angry and I'm going to let it out and you deserve to just feel that. But I think that's short-sighted. And it, while it can be good in that moment, it may be cathartic for you in that moment, that eventually you're going to want to try to come back and repair to some extent whatever's been hurt yeah you know what I mean and maybe you're not doing it with that person but you're going to probably be doing it with people like that person because mindsets mindsets are vast and very established already and so it's just it's it's hard to find that balance of like how and it's something you see Atticus deal with a lot you see him be so pinched especially after uh dude spits in his face yeah and there's a moment where you're like Atticus could take this fool out. Like if he really wanted to, Atticus could just destroy him. This is so complicated because I thought so much, I wrote it down in my notes several times. Um, you know, when, when, when they go low, we go high. 
um, is something that I believe in. However, at what point, at what point do you have to stop and say, I got to fight force with force? You wonder if Atticus feels that too yes. after they come after Jem. Yeah. Because, okay, so now we have to get into a very complicated conversation yeah. about Atticus at the end of this movie and, and book and, and where he sits because it a lot of things confuse me. So where to start? Okay, so at the end, Tom is lynched. Um, he's found guilty. Atticus tells him, look, you know, we're going to appeal it. And again, being Atticus and the character that's been established so far, this is the truest he knows it to be, which is crazy because now we're getting into like this, this entire film, this book, this narrative is an early conversation starter for white, for just for white people to talk about race. It was just, it's a, it's an establishing opening statement, but it's by a white woman. And so it's limited in its scope. Um, Still beautifully written, still loving the characters, but I must acknowledge the limited. For example, there's no way to me Calpernica doesn't have that conversation with Jem outside. Jem comes home after seeing um, the guides at the prison trying to break in. And he's a kid. He's young. He just had to stand in front of his father in a mob, which is going to be very emotionally draining on anybody. And Calpernica comes outside and she looks at him, but she doesn't say anything. But we've already seen Calpernica mm -hmm. discipline Scout. Yep. Calpernica's voice is respected. She is the motherly voice in that house, along with M next door. Um, I don't think there would have been a line or a div I think she would have said something to Jem. You know, that's her place and she's natural in it, even though she's still calling Atticus sir, which is another thing where I was like, man, there's so much to Calpernica. I have so many questions and so much of her is not fleshed out as a full human being. And it can be it's a little frustrating. And then we get this moment at the end, you know, and Atticus believes firmly that, you know, we're just going to appeal. I, I figured we would lose this one. Not dumb, but I have a plan and we're going to try to just move it up. And then, you know, they get back to the house and he's recounting the story of, you know, what he's been told about Tom. You can't see his face. So I'm not 100% sure what actor Gregory Peck meant to imply to the audience about Atticus's thinking. I believe, I think that he's wrestling with the idea yeah. because things don't quite, it, none of it adds up. Like he just, like there's some spite in his voice when he says, oh, he ran away like a madman or a crazed man. And you can, you can get this like hint of spite of like, that's not the Tom I knew. He wouldn't do that. But also Tom was desperate, and so maybe he had to run. I don't know. And it it breaks your heart a little bit, but also I think it's just very honest about probably where someone like Atticus would be, somebody who has a big heart, someone who does exhibit a lot of empathy, um, but someone who hasn't had a lot of interactions with black people or, or isn't immersed in the culture and the community. And, and, you know, we're still getting people today who are like, this isn't us. And I'm like, this violence has been going on for generations. So it's... Actually, it's very much us. So it, it's fascinating to, to think about Atticus, especially in, this lat, in the third act. Well, Atticus is coming from a very specific kind of privilege and experience of I'm on the outside and you're on the inside. Atticus can, gets to go home and sleep in his bed every night. Atticus sa can say, I need you to give me the next couple of years of your life. And Atticus has the ability to 
Atticus has the privilege to trust the system. Mm. Yes. And I believe that even if the story, I think that's what, that to me is part of what Atticus is grappling with when he's telling the story. But I told him not to do this because I know the legal system and it's going, it could be, and then maybe he's probably going, but would it be okay? What, what's the point of the appeal? And if I were desperate, what would I do? Probably the same thing was, and Atticus is also in that moment probably saying, was this the inevitable conclusion the entire time? Yeah. And, and yeah, it goes back to M's speech earlier where she was like, you know, your dad was meant, like brought to this earth to do our unpleasant business. And, and to, again, you have like all these moments. I love the moments where Atticus is just alone, yeah. but the kids are nearby. Mm -hmm. Like when um, Scout's asking Jem about um, their mother. And the last question she asks before Jem falls asleep is, um, do you miss her? And it's just him on the porch and Gregory Peck Jr. said he is. He doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. He doesn't emote to you. Of course he misses her. Like, guy is all love and he just adores his children. Yeah. There's no way he wasn't like heart sick over losing his wife. And so you have all those great moments. And I, I think in those solitary moments, you get these moments of doubt that he will never exhibit for his children. And that's why they get to believe that he is this like giant of a man because they don't he doesn't pass any of those doubts or fears onto them he tells them the way the world is he expects them to rise to certain challenges but he does protect them from a lot and then to go off of that at the end when he thinks that Jem has killed Mr. Yule uh I just can't remember his first name Bob or something but um Atticus says to the sheriff, well, okay, so we got to take him. Like, and the sheriff is like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> the sheriff is like, you think Jem stabbed this dude? I mean, like, but he carried him in. To, like, he's just such an innocent, like, like pure hearted man that sometimes even, like, he was so distraught about killing a dog that... In all, in all honesty, he put out of its misery. Like, you couldn't consider that a murder. He clearly took he was helping this thing transcend to the next space. Like it breaks your heart how good hearted he is. And sort of how naive he is too. Yeah. Because, yeah. because you need him to be smarter. That's right. Because he can't, he can't be the advocate and the ally that he comes so close to being so close, so close without, uh, hardening a little bit of that naive nature. Like it's not, it's kind of crazy how he's, still sort of, the bar is so low is what I'm trying to say because Atticus Finch is still the pinnacle of allyship you know what I mean if we're talking about like visual representation of good allies of allies we might trust you know it's still it's still Atticus it's Atticus is still the best guy I can think of who's out here best white guy I can think of who's out here and trying to make things right for other people who's trying to do the right thing and yet I'll say this I have family members who work in law enforcement, all sides, lawyers, police, whatever, uh, prison guards, all of it. Like, so I, like, I have such a hard time trusting our law system, but I also really respect people who want to see it be its highest good. Yeah. You know, I have such respect and, and, and hope that they are able to figure out how do we make this thing that ultimately is needed for our society to run. We, we can't abolish it. But how do we make it better, especially given, you know, how horrible it's been and how ingrained a culture like 
the justice system is now a culture. And I think we don't maybe understand that enough. And Atticus is like a lot of proof of that, of like, well, no, I have my law books and I know what the law is and I'm going to use it the right way. And some people are going to try to skirt it, but like the law, because it's, you know, been created and evolved, will fix the problem. And it's just, it doesn't so much. It's, and also I think it's the attempt to work within the system to change the system Mm -hmm. and to elevate the system because there is still a belief in the system. Um, And then there's of course another element of, of the people who go, fuck the system, let's blow Mm. the system up because it's not going fast enough. Like, you know, and it's a really hard, it's a really hard conversation or or, um, complicated issue because I think that ultimately all, no matter how we are, those who are trying to improve the system, we all want that. We want the same things in theory. If we are, if we, if we all recognize, if a group of people recognizes there is a problem, the question is, how do we fix it? And there are some people who have the luxury of time and saying, no, we're going to do it little by little, one by one. And then there are other people who go big change, big mm. sweep, you know. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like, how do you put the two together? I don't think you can, and I think you need both, which is, it's frustrating. Yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had that whole, like, we're just going to do this a little bit at a time. Yeah. She's like, I, and thank God she was right, I'm going to live this long life, and I'm going to slowly see the system change. And part of that has worked. Nelson, Nelson Mandela, similar task. Okay, I got to go to prison for this. I'm going to make sure that y'all know it's wrong that I'm here. From inside of here, I'm going to change everything, and I'll do it slowly, and I will sacrifice most of my time on earth to make this happen horrible way a great way to see accomplishments horrible like your whole life man like you dedicated it you made it so good and and i would never obviously admonish anybody who who gave so much of themselves but it's sad that they have to to make the change in the first place and then you think about the reverse side of that is people who are waiting who don't get to make the choice you know what i mean who are just thrust into that life who are hurting every single day you know, we can look at like for right now, trans rights and indigenous rights and the fact that both sex of people are just so pushed to, to the edge that it becomes about bathroom issues. Like it's a bathroom. We have stalls. Most people are trying to get in and out. No one. Most people do not like spending exorbitant amounts of time in a public restroom. I would like, agree. This is it's the most non-issue for anyone ever. I really don't care who's in the stall next to me. And it's, again, it's frustrating because I, I guess it's mostly frustrating now because I'm re- like cusping 30. And as I get there and I think about like, you know, as a kid, especially when you're reading like bogus history, when you're like, oh, come on, like this really happened? How could people be so stupid? Who let this happen and why? But, you know, now I'm definitely an adult, definitely living in society, definitely paying taxes and involved and invested. And in, like, I'm trying to find my Atticus state of peace of like what do I believe in and how am I going to make that difference you know and Atticus does it in like a lawful good way I will engage in my civic duty you know I will defend this man even though I know it's going to be hard even though it's going to take a toll on my entire family because it is the right thing to do I am not lawful good (laughs) I don't have that kind of patience but I also don't want to look back on my life and be like, I lived comfortably while we like, 
children with numbers and put them in cages. Yeah. Like, and it's, this film is a really great example of representation of like, sometimes your small human life, even if it won't make the change you want it to make, you maybe you can just affect the people around you and hopefully, you know, you'll have that ripple pond effect. You know, we know Atticus got through to that community, which it didn't help Tom. It didn't do Jack for Tom. But at the very least, a whole bunch of people were like, well, screw that other guy. Yeah. He can die. Like, we will town conspiracy this shit up so fast. No one will ever need know that that guy did anything because he was a trash human being. And you proved to us that there was no way this man did anything wrong. Yeah. Even though a jury couldn't, like, counter convict. It's so much for Atticus to grapple with at the end. And I think it shatters his belief in a lot of things, which is what I would have wanted to see in the book. I don't think Atticus in the sequel would have been racist. And in my ideal sequel, Atticus would have hated his fucking town. Yeah. In my ideal sequel, Atticus would have been like, what is, how? Like I did, I gave everything because I thought that we were going to make changes. Like, you know, especially if you think, so the book takes place in like 1932, I think the movie comes out in 1960. Uh, did I write it down? I don't know if I did, but is it 50s or 60s? Yeah, yeah late 50s, early 60s, I think. Um, you're deep into, like, you're beginning the civil rights conversation. Emmett Till dies in 1958, so that's very much the kickoff. So Martin Luther King is already starting to, like, gather people. And it's kind of, I think, how we view, you know, prison reform or, or, or re- weed regulation. That's a it's, huge thing. It's inevitable. Yeah. We're going to make these changes, and people will be better off. And I think that's definitely Atticus's state of mind. Of like, well, it'll be work. But eventually, because it's the right thing, that's what will happen. And it just, it doesn't happen so often. And it's like, I would love to revisit Atticus. You know, his kids are grown and the town is the same as it ever was. And he, you know, despite giving everything, despite making these small little things better, you know, people were still awful and still allowed, you know, people to die and live in poverty and all of those things. Do you know the the story of... um Curtis Flowers. He's um, in jail right now. He's incarcerated. He's on death row. Um, the podcast In the Dark did a did their second season on his case. Oh, wow. And um, essentially, he has been conv- tried and convicted by this DA, Doug Evans, um, seven times. So we hate Doug. He is very bad. And uh, his case is... So, you know, the podcast's point is not to say... Uh, it doesn't, they say they don't have an agenda. They just want to investigate the case. Okay, so like serial. Yeah, kind of, yes. Um, But the, basically the findings that they have come up with pretty much, I think, are solid, reasonable doubt. But uh, he is in, um, I want to say he's in, Curtis is in Mississippi. Um, And Doug Evans has chosen, by the way, to prosecute him seven times. Meaning, if there's a, because there have been a handful of mistrials, there have been a handful of guilty verdicts, and there have been a handful of um, hung juries, and he keeps bringing it, keeps bringing it, keeps bringing it. It sounds like that judge who was just shipping kids off to, like, uh, like juvenile detention he was getting kickbacks from the prison and just collecting as much money as possible yeah i mean like this guy definitely has an agenda but Mm. i i bring it up because you know curtis 
Curtis's case, I think it's very clear when you listen to the evidence of the case that there's not enough evidence there to convict, but a jury of his peers. So, so his case is actually going to be heard by the Supreme Court next year. And it's not a guilty or innocent question. Um, there is a, there's a law and I can't, uh, I forgive me, but I don't know the, the exact term, but, um, basically Doug Evans is being accused, uh, and as of, of striking black people from the jury at a higher rate. Oh, you can't do that, sir. That's illegal. It is illegal, but who is going to prosecute him? Yeah, I was going to say it's a bad time to get uh, this Supreme Court. So now they are saying, like people who are looking at the case from the outside are saying uh, traditionally um, these. So basically he has been he has this has been appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And they say traditionally the Supreme Court doesn't hear cases or or weigh in on cases to confirm or validate, you know what I mean, like what has come before. So they basically are saying that they think that they're going to find in Curtis's defense's favor. Okay. But, you know, it's such a... But, but I bring it up not to be a downer, but because... It really, I really thought about him a lot while I was watching because when with Tom, it's so very clear that just plain as day, just that he did not do this. No way he could have. And uh, they still say, yeah, we don't care. Yeah, yeah not interested in we looking. We saw a white at- lady cry, and she said that uh, that's what happened. So we're gonna believe her. It's funny that you you mentioned. You know, that was who you were thinking. Curtis was who you were thinking of. I was thinking of um, the two women who murdered the guys who were raping them yeah, this, when the, they were children. Yes. And they were like, oh, well, 50 years. Yeah. And then we'll consider letting you out. And I want to be like, a child was sexually assaulted, videotaped, and then murdered her attacker. Like, th- that's not a crime. I'm sorry. It's not. Like, she survived and she got out and she did what she needed to do to live. Like, And they're throwing the book at her, meaning, like, the, like the law had changed, you know. And But because she – so meaning because she was under the age of 18, she couldn't be – she was considered mm-hmm. not a sex worker. She right. was considered a human trafficking victim mm-hmm. or a se- – you know. Like, we can squeeze one more in and under this ancient, decrepit that law. That is what is so fucking – insane to me is that is that it was the choice Mm -hmm. people in our criminal justice system were given a choice to charge this woman this who who was a child at the time in such a way or you know follow the new precedent and they Mm -hmm. chose i to 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 not do that it's unfathomable it's like i don't under i I really don't understand in the same way that I i don't understand I don't understand a wall between nations. Sure. I, mean, I don't yeah. understand. I don't understand. Like, I just don't, I, I don't understand why like you would even want to arrest somebody seeking asylum. And I don't understand how you can lack empathy enough to say like, Hey, you know, I understand people being like, you know, we have a process and it's bad, but like, please adhere to the process if you can. Seeking asylum is a legal process right. by which you can enter this country. So, like, the amount of hate that goes into just being like, I just want you to suffer away from me despite the fact that we have more than enough space and, like, yeah. opportunities for you here. Just please go out there and, and just be in pain. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I'm so like, – the thing about, like, To Kill a Mockingbird is, like, it's really great because it's this contained time capsule um, – Especially from like your eight, the ages of like six to 13 mm-hmm. are what you're kind of, you know, looking through that scope. 
Um, but man, you have to like wonder, like, are Atticus's kids able to believe right. in the justice system? Because they saw the whole, like, behind the entire curtain through this at such young eyes, and they're both very aware children. Um, and they were both, you know, assaulted and, and physically felt the pain of, of this justice system, too. And I wonder, like, if they're not all bitter by the end of yeah. it. You know, I mean, I don't know. Is your dad bitter at all? Like, because I think he's tired. And I think he has complicated feelings about everything. I, I, I think it's I think it's hard to not get jaded sure. by the process. And um, I think also when you get older, I don't know what happens to you when you get older, but things you, you, I guess you stop being hopeful in a way. Yeah, no, and I, I got that from my dad, certainly, because, like, when, um, right after Ferguson, protests, like, really picked up, and I had spent most of my college years, like, marching on with prop, for Prop 8 and things like that, and very much about the queer agenda, and so as we were shifting from a queer perspective to, uh, to be honest, an intersectional perspective, but for me, that meant looking a lot more at, like, race relations and, and um, Black Lives Matter and all of that stuff, you know, I called my dad one day, like maybe three or four years ago. And I was like, I'm going out. And he was like, please don't. And this is so confusing because my dad, <laughs> my dad was in like a rock and roll band in the eighties, you know? <laughs> so he, he was like, you know, edgy in that way. And then he was a, in the black Panther program when he was a kid. So we're wow. talking like the start of the black Panthers. My dad is a kid, you know, eating off of their breakfast, like programs in the morning and like marching and mm -hmm. hanging out. And it, it was shocking for him to just be like, no, don't. I was like, but, why? Like, you know, I have to go out. And if I don't go out, like, who else isn't going out? And our voices need to be heard. And he's like, but if you die, what is the point? And I was like, at that point, I was like, I am very willing to, I'm so mad. I was like, I'm very willing to die. Like, it was right after Sandra Bland died. That's when it was. And I was like, I, how do you get pulled over for a taillight and end up dead? Like, none of this makes sense to me. And I'm angry and I want people to know it. I'm coming back to this idea of like justifiable anger, but it feels very not channeled. Even marching in the streets, it's just a first step. Yeah. And it's such a visual first step that I think people often are like, this is so good and we feel connected. And but it doesn't do much beyond that. You know, it took, I think the Montgomery boycott was like a year and a half. Feel free to correct me on my numbers, people. But a long time of people just very dedicated being like, we're going to walk to work. Mm -hmm. We're going to just destroy you financially. Yeah. And I don't see like, – I want to say we don't have a lot of financial agency as a generation if you're millennials, True. even some yeah. you know late Gen Xers, early Gen Zers. But honestly, I know that my ancestors had little or no like financial yeah. agency too. And so it's not a very good excuse. And I still feel very lost about like, where do I channel all of this? And it brings me back to the safest and most comfortable idea, which this film projects so loudly, which is just take care of your people, mm -hmm. you know, take care of those around you. Atticus has respect for literally everyone around him. I love the scene where he talks to the grumpy old lady and mm, they're yes. like, she's so mean yeah. and blah. And he's like, my God, you're so lovely. And these flowers, gorgeous. And even then she's like, well, they're better last year. Yeah. I'm so off put by this kindness that you're projecting at me. I, I don't know how to react other than to be kind back. And I know that that's a fallacy. It's on hundred percent of the time, you know, so you can be as sweet as roses to people and they'll still just 
be mean as hell and there's nothing you can do about it. But I think Atticus has found something that makes sense to me, which is just I'm just going to try to be as kind and and stick to my principles as best I can and hope for the best. And, you know, as we've already discussed, it's it doesn't always work. And sometimes it's short sighted and a little naive, but also you have to keep pushing. You yeah. have to keep living in this space. He has to go on even after Tom is lynched. He he has children to take care of. He has a job to do. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. I, it's all very complicated. It is. And it's, but you know what? It's, it's, it's just, I think when we talk about these things, it's great. The, having the conversation is really important. Mm-hmm. Also under knowing that we can't necessarily come up with the solution, but we can find ways to, again, chip away. It's just, I think that it's hard to accept that the process has to be slow. Yeah. Cause people are dying and in pain in between then it's, I don't know how we as a nation or not, we have a lot of things to talk about, you so know, many. but like with respect to the criminal justice system and what we were saying about marijuana, like the fact that it's le- it's commercial and it's in some places and, but people are spending their lives in jail over small amounts an eighth of weed like like 35 years like what i i don't know how we reconcile that um you release everyone immediately yeah the thing too is like sometimes these solutions seem so simple but getting them passed through our system is just annoyingly challenging like there's no way like marlboro just invested like two billion dollars into pot farming which is fine we've been new this before anything was legal they were buying like large farms up in Northern California. They've been gearing toward this for a long time and it just makes sense. Of course they're going to do that. But for us, like, I just don't understand how like, okay, well, if you're in here just for weed, please stand up. You can leave. Right. Like we don't need you here. You don't need to report to anybody. Like we're going to just clear this off your record. You couldn't hurt anybody with the weed. If you tried, you really can't, you cannot OD on weed. You'd have to try so hard to do it. It would be not, you buy bleach like it's gonna be much yeah yeah yeah. and less expensive so i think this movie has made me think so much about how i want to engage with my criminal justice system and currently the answer is zero Mm -hmm. i would like to engage not at all um because it terrifies me um and i don't think i would fare well (laughs) in any aspect of it but but again i don't know you see atticus and then and you kind of want to believe. Yeah. The ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law or Southern, the Law Project. Southern Poverty Law yes, Center. Yes, Law mm-hmm. Center. Thank you. And um, the uh, Innocence Project. Yes. And there are, there are people out there fighting and finding resources and donating resources and making, sh- and, and they, they are not giving up. And that I think is like the big, you know, those groups having support big sweeping support and coming together and really focusing on things like that's a really great way. Mm. It's not everything, but there it's there, mm. you know? And that's what, that's something that makes me feel hopeful. You know, like I, this is a very, it might sound trite, but like, when the Muslim ban was first enacted, mm. seeing all the attorneys rush to the airport. It was a day of hope for everybody. I mean, yeah, and like, you know, I think saying, you know, no, we are not going to stand for this and I will go and I will, don- I will donate my time and my skills 
um, you know, again, like that's, that's something that, that I wasn't able to do. I'm not a lawyer, but, but yeah, like things like that are, are, are hopeful. And so I think at the end of the day, when I look at something like To Kill a Mockingbird, I see the loss of innocence in so many ways. Uh, perhaps Atticus stayed too innocent too long, mm. but I also see the hope for those kids and for the town. And as you said, like hopefully imparting onto the town that an injustice was done mm. and it doesn't have to be that way again, but mm -hmm. that doesn't help Tom. It's just, it's interesting too, because once we, we throw in like Arthur Radley and mm -hmm. the idea of, I talk about not fully understanding a whole story. There's so much mystery around yeah. who Boo Radley is and like, and then you see the other things you see a lot of these mistakes being made multiple times and echoed from Boo Radley's story to Tom's like for Boo, Boo's not a violent person that we've seen unless people are in danger. He stabbed his father. All we know is that his mother yelled, he's killing us. Everyone just assumed it was crazy kid. But my instant assumption, especially based off Jem's first reaction to him was like, there goes the meanest man who ever breathed breath. Like that, that's the guy you guys should be worried about. Like yeah. that's the guy who locks his kid in a basement, you know, in the dark instead of sending him to get mental help or even to prison where he would probably would have been served much better and had yeah. a blanket and some food to eat. You, you see, and then, you know, and then slowly they close Boo off from everybody. He seals up the hole in the tree in the same way that we put Tom away and in a prison and isolated from like his all those people standing on the porch waiting for Tom, you know, to come home or for them to figure out how they're going to tackle this appeal. Everyone that they love is just slowly cut off and separated and then judged publicly and openly and shamed. Um, and then at the end, you know, it kind of presents two options. Like Tom is dead and Boo, Boo had to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's, comfortable we don't know enough about him to know if this is something he's comfortable in doing if this is an additional ptsd on him all we know is that he feels confident enough that he saved the kids and scout has made this breakthrough and that just because i don't understand somebody doesn't mean that they're not necessarily a good person and just because i know you by name and just because you bring me gifts doesn't mean that you're a good person or behaving in a good way in this like moment in time and it's just so not comforting. You know what I mean? Like there's the, the movie has such a feel of nostalgia and warmth. And yet once you start digging into what we're left with at the end, and I, I really feel that's the reason for attempting the second book. And I don't think there, there are good answers yeah. for any of these things. I don't know where you, how you would start tackling, trying to wrap up some of the questions that the film and the book leave you with. Yeah. Oy vey. Um, well, uh, speaking of the questions, yes. um, is there, before we move on to the mm. next part, uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on from To Kill a Mockingbird? Just that, that Dill was uh, me and I am Dill? Dill is adorable. I'm little, but I'm old. And I was like, I see you. Because again, advanced early reader, like 
I wasn't a kid who could make a lot of friends. Like all my friends were adults mm-hmm. and I would go to parties and like, Susan, how's it going? You know, like very weird. Like this child is too grown and we don't know what to do with her. And so Dill, who desperately just wants to be one of the kids and like hang out, but also like, what is it? Jesus, Aunt M. Like he's so proper and adorable. And I just, again, other stories I would follow. I would follow Jim back to, he's from Mississippi. I'd follow him back to Mississippi and learn more about his story. What'd you do for the rest of the summer? What's your school like? I have a feeling you're lonely. I don't want you to be, but like, I just, I love Dill so much and I appreciate him and I appreciate um, Aunt M because like having a strong like presence next door and I, there's a conversation every kid has at some point with their parent's friend or an aunt or uncle with a wish like you were my parent Mm -hmm. my parent doesn't get me or understand me and it's everyone's responsibility as long as the parent is a good healthy person to just be like look child i understand but your parent loves you to the moon and back and they are good people and they give you so much you just don't even know how lucky you are and to hear her put it you know to jim who obviously idolizes his dad but is having this moment she's like your dad can make an airtight contract okay a will that cannot be broken that's important on multiple levels. I just got the symbolism of that as I said it. I was like, oh, Will, that can't be yeah. driven. Duh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's incredible is what I'm saying. Um, so, yeah, just to those two characters who are amazing little side additions. And, again, mad respect to Calpernica. If you're the kind of person who can do rewrites from revisions a la Wicked, someone give Calpernica a yeah. backstory line because – her just lasting her staying at the house you know she has that oh that's so knowing moment of he's like look can you stay tonight she's like yeah yeah i know what you're doing and i'm gonna be here for these kids and i just oh what are her internal conversations about with first of all super hunk gregory as your sexy like widowed boss just goddamn Mm -hmm. um but maybe she has family at home i don't know i love calpernica and i just would love to know more about her i wonder i should do some research but we were talking before we started rolling because and gosh shame on me i don't have her name written down but i didn't even realize sam jackson was married the actor Mm -hmm. uh to another actor oh yeah she's great and she's the one who like supported him in his early career I had no idea. He used to sleep in the theaters where he was performing. Sam Jackson's early career is really fascinating. He was a dancer. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, I will say that I've been seeing a lot of praise for her and her performance in To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, so I do wonder if maybe there were some revisions or maybe there was a little more or maybe the director actively, even if it wasn't with spoken dialogue. That subtext. I love an old play with new subtext. That's right. And so I've been seeing raves for her and I... uh, I, I, Raves in such a small role. I gotta get out there. That's what I mean. And and I wonder, I mean, I, I have to know it's I'm 99% sure she's playing cow per cow but um okay so before I let you go yes. everybody gets to add a movie okay to the list one second I want to make sure that I tell you the right film which needs to come off of this excellent list. let's do it's it it's number 73 <laughs> <laughs> remember the number I love oh that oh my gosh uh and AFI while you do that why don't I look up this information about this incredible actress that we've been talking about and I yes, don't have her, her name. name. Let them know. Yes, we need to say, we need to make sure she gets her credit. Uh, I love that AFI has the checklist now though. Yes. Give you that. It's not number 73. I lied. That's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and that can say right where it is. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Never listen to me. Oh, 
It's 76. Forrest Gump is going to be ripped from this list. Yeah. This is not a 100 best films for anyone ever. It's not even Tom Hanks' top five movies. Sit down. Um, I'm not a huge Tom... Or, no, that... Whoa, stripes. Tom Hanks Hanks talks, let me stop. Yes. I, I am a huge Tom Hanks hand. Tom Hanks hand? We're getting that. I, <laughs> I am a huge Tom Hanks fan. Uh, I am not a huge fan of Forrest Gump either. It just does not deserve to be here. Now, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say that initially, at the start of this day, Jane Campion's The Piano uh, mm-hmm. was my pick. There is not a more perfect love movie that also talks about being in love and having depression. Mm. Um, there even... We're dealing with a lot of more movies where we're dealing people who are speaking more in sign language, who are deaf. Uh, she is completely mute throughout this and these performances, little baby Anna Paquin. Yeah. It's it's peak. Everything about it is perfect. Visual imagery is wonderful. The music is spectacular. I love this movie. And if you haven't made time for the piano, you should. But Penny Marshall died this morning. She did. And so I am going to say a league of their own. Thank you. Deserves to be in the top 100 films of all time. If you... Want, speaking of our good buddy Tom Hanks, yes, you know we can just take one Tom Hanks movie and just put a new one there on. There you go. Uh, he won't lose his position. Um, but this movie knocked me out. It was the first film that I interacted with that I understood a woman had made this right, and so I watched it a lot as a kid. I think it came out in what ninety two, I think. I can't remember a time I didn't have this movie in my lexicon, and it profoundly changed the way I viewed women, the way I viewed our history as women, especially in this country, because the idea that you are good to us when men are gone is prevalent in a lot of like, well, men don't want this. So here you take it. And the women make beautiful, great things. I think it was Bukowski who said like, every woman is giving you more than any man could because they provide everything. Whatever you give them, they make better. They made baseball great and exciting. They had to perform tricks and stunts and do all this like extra work just try to get, and then and deal with your harassment at the same time. And they were still funny and they were still sisters at the end of the day. Like a drunk Tom Hanks is like amazing. So funny in this role and big. If Rosie O'Donnell, shout out to big girls getting love on screen in a way that is, their bodies were not being made fun of. Like she just was and then their love just was. It was so cute and sweet and also good sister rivalries. We just got out of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And listen, love Game of Thrones, but y'all robbed us of a good Sansa and Arya team up last season. Okay. Totally. You were like, oh, they're bickering. I know these sisters aren't bickering. They're Winterfell. They just got back to each other. They're gonna unite instantly. I see through this whole plot. You made me wait nine episodes for what I already knew was gonna happen. I'm mad. Make better sisters. They're amazing. Um, every everything about this movie says it should be in the top 100. Someone, oh God, I got to get better at remembering who tweets things. But someone today said that um, if that movie had been made now, easily Oscar contender. Yeah. Potentially Oscar winner. Yeah. It's that good. Yes. I'm, I, you know, I'm so glad that you brought this up. This movie has come up with um, Rachel Cushing. It came up with Ashley Clements. It has come up with so many women <laughs> on the show. And, uh, and you know, it's, so I, it's funny because it's it, a league of their own is on the quotes list uh, for there's no crying in baseball. Um, 
And what's interesting. So the man's line, I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> I, just, I, I know. I know. Even when we win, we fail. It's true. And you know, I, uh, I, I bring it up because I do think it's important. And I mentioned this briefly with Ashley when she similarly added it to the list, but I feel like, um, what we need to realize is that quotes, classic iconic lines from movies don't work unless the whole rest of the movie Oh yeah, the, is the entire buildup to right? that line needs to be a punchline that then casts over everything about that movie. Because if you think about why does, there's no crying in baseball works. It works because one, they're women. Some of them will cry as humans are allowed to do. And women have been allowed to do openly for a very long time. Just because they pick up a bat doesn't mean they're going to stop crying. But also, you need to cry. You've shut yourself down so emotionally. There's no crying in baseball is your main problem. You've dedicated yourself to a sport that doesn't allow you any additional outlet. And so it's it's funny for multiple reasons, but it's real and it's penetrating and it builds up. And then Tom Hanks just lays into it. And it's so great. But to show the quote in the line and the performance respect, but not the entire film, it's like when the Academy nominates the actors and the writer and the cinematographer, but not the movie. You're like, wait, yeah. how did we get did here? All, I don't yeah. understand. Yeah, it's um, A League of Their Own is a movie. I, I want, you know, Penny Marshall did not make a lot of films. However, um, she the, the movies she made by and large are, are great fantastic and um and speaking of tom hanks her you know i was thinking recently about women who direct men to oscar winning performances mm, Catherine and, Bigelow's, yes. yes and penny marshall directing mm -hmm. him i mean granted he didn't win but you know um i'm sorry someone from selma win best no I that one best picture but i don't think we had a performance yeah i would i think they were were they nominated was david yellow yeah. nominated i think i'm pretty sure um but uh but i do think about penny marshall and uh and big and i think about mary heron in american psycho which was not nominated yes. which is crazy to talk me talk about another female director who just was never given the respect yeah the, the oh my god yeah and uh uh Oh, crap. Who directed Wonder Woman? Oh, uh, Patty Jenkins. Patty. The amount of women who've like, I made something huge successful. We're not sure you could do it again. That guy made it indie for $1,000 and you gave him a $2 million yeah. budget. Like, y'all don't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. But I, it, A League of Their Own is is a great film. Please watch it. If you're listening to the show and you haven't ever seen it, or maybe you saw it once on TV and you're like, okay, I think I remember. Watch it. It's it's so good. And, the, and Gina Davis is... Like the more I see of her, the more I am so in love with her and talk about, you know, she is an actress who has gotten older and, you know, like Jamie Lee Curtis is on social media screaming, Adorable. saying, I want to fucking work. Please hire me, people. And all these all these guys who are now making horror movies based on like her movies are like, oh, we should hire her, you know, great. Mm. Um, and uh, Gina Davis is living her best life and doing what she's doing. But like. I just want to see, I want her reconnaissance, reconnaissance. I always said reconnaissance, <laughs> renaissance and reconnaissance, but yeah. The genaissance. The genaissance. Yes. I just love her. She's incredibly talented and um, yeah, man, I love A League of Their Own. So good. If you're a filmmaker and or writer and you make the movies, more women in their 40s and 50s, 60s and 70s. You give me some of their 80s. Like just older women are really dope. I don't know if you guys have grandmas. My grandma's amazing. Uh, she has wonderful stories. Even now, my grandmother's social life is much more active than mine. Love it. I just it's frustrating. It's frustrating that you know women past like 35. They're like. 
What do we even do with with her? Do you even have anything to say? Are you angry at a younger woman? We can make that movie. Oh, my God. Well, all right. To close things out, let's give our um, our props to our queen, Latanya Richardson or Latanya Richardson Jackson as Calpurnia. Yes, uh, Latanya. And she is getting uh, the the quote. And gosh, where is this from? Um, she is starring in To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. And the review says uh, her tenderness towards Scout in particular is conveyed with touching understatement. As a black woman in the pre-civil rights South, Cal remains true to the period by keeping her views largely to herself. But in her body language and attitudes, the marvelous Jackson shows that she is a friend to Atticus and therefore free to let her exasperation be known along with her disappointment in his naivete. So you're totally right that that brand new subtext. We see it a little bit with the performer um in here in the film uh but even yeah i and they have to they have to work with the text that they're given but i still think calpernica would have said something to Jem about just experiencing that yeah because calpernica knows she's yeah. been there she's seen it there you but, go yeah. excellent this was lovely you're lovely you're the best <laughs> so thank you for doing this and in and mark my words listeners uh if nobody has picked the apartment i'm coming back she's coming back y'all surely this we is, need to talk oh, about girl, her john girl listen we're gonna talk about alcoholics playing alcoholics and whoo so i i just i cannot wait so in fact maybe i'm just gonna hold it and <laughs> say nobody else is allowed to i take feel so it. special <laughs> somebody's <laughs> like well maybe i could do the apartment or i'd be like okay well maybe we'll do the other one Pick another one yeah because i because I, I got an outstanding date <laughs> <laughs> in december of 2019 love it all right love thank you so much bye friends that's gonna do it for me today uh for us today that was a long one and it got in depth and i hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as uh, i enjoyed having it because i really really did and i was not kidding when i said that i might not let anybody take the apartment if anybody tries i might i might tell them it's on reserve for her just so we can come back in 2019 december 2019 and do it all again um, this Thursday on Patreon, I am going to have a special episode, special mini up. If you are not already contributing to Patreon, go on over there, check it out. Patreon.com slash Clark Wolf. Um, there are many different tiers of support, many different rewards, et cetera, et cetera. But if you, um, just enjoy listening to the podcast, if you wouldn't mind sharing, telling your friends, rating, reviewing, that's always helpful. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Happy new year, um, to a bigger and brighter and Boulder 2019. May we all be safe, healthy, happy, and uh, learn a thing or two. Alrighty, friends. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.